and gentlemen, welcome to the Voice of Neuro, another philosophy clock with Eche Fatum. This time, we're going to address the why of everything. Why this? Why that? We're going to break it down into different things. Eche Fatum, how are you doing today? Doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing well, but now that I've just given the topic, I'm trying to find out why I'm doing well. And I think that actually might not be a bad starting point for just approaching that question. Because as a child, I think that's one of the first and most important questions that is instinctual for us to ask. We get told a bunch of stuff. We get fed knowledge about how the world works and a kid's default response is often, why? So if I'm doing well today, why am I doing well? And I would probably reference Maslow's hierarchy of needs first. I'm not starving. I got a good night's rest. I'm streaming for a community I love with a good friend. And the first session of D&D went really well. So that's why I'm doing well. Why are you doing well? Um, I'm doing well because I had plenty of time to enjoy the great outdoors yesterday. So I got some good exercise in. Um, Business is taking up because of the World Economic Forum, um, and I'm able to give a philosophy lecture, which I always love to do. Sweet. And yeah, I, I like that you brought it to the why question that um, childrens always ask, and they go can go on with that forever. Like there's mm -hmm. no running out of the question why when you talk to a kid. And it gets to the point where it's super difficult to answer. And we'll be exploring exactly these parts where we don't know the why. So we'll be presenting some different views on why something could be or should be. What are the theories on the topic and how to approach it? So that being said, I think the biggest question or one of the biggest questions for humanity is why the universe? Why is there anything instead of nothing? Which is an inherently difficult question to answer because we don't know how it would be if there was nothing. And we had no point of referencing what nothing would be like since there would be no one there to experience it. I think the, the two biggest answer to the question of why the universe comes from either um, theism or science. So one theory would be that God created everything. So God being there before or while there was nothing else and then creating everything out of nothing. And the other theory I think we're mostly familiar with is that everything started at the Big Bang and we're just have been rolling the dice ever since. Yeah, there's also different fun questions you can ask that oftentimes I feel like don't have any effect on the person who poses the question. One of them would be, what if the Big Bang was initiated by an entity? Would that change anything? Kind of. There's also the why or the question of, is this all a big simulation? Some people ask that in the chat pretty often. That one is a funny one for me because... I feel like effectively I would not change my course of action in any tangible way if there's no way for me to influence 
the aspect of being in a simulation. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. The, the big question, if you're asking yourself if this is a simulation or real, um, if you would change anything based on certainty that it is one or the other thing, you should overthink your actions right now and think, why would I act differently in a simulation than I would in real life? Hmm. It, it gets to the point I was making last time, though, um, when you're not sure whether or not this is a dream or you're awake. Um, some caution might be uh, a good advice, like if you realize you're in a dream and you decide running naked through town. On the off case, it's not a dream. It might not be the best idea. Yeah. Yeah, there's the utility side of things as well, because I think the the question, how does it affect me in either case, is a pretty useful one. And there's actually a, it's not really a theory, it's described as a wager that comes to mind in that sense. Yeah. Pascal's wager, have you heard of that? I think you dropped temporarily from it. I asked yeah. if you've heard of Pascal's Wager. Yeah, I knew where you were going with that one. Yeah, Pascal's Wager is a really interesting um, approach to these questions. Um, it basically makes you weigh um, the difference between what if something is like that and what would be if, it, if it's not like that. The original wager was based on what if God existed? and God expected you to act in a certain way, what would be gained if you um, if you abide those rules and what would be lost if you don't? So mm -hmm. if there is a God and he expects us to do the Ten Commandments, for example, um, what would be gained from it would be a, an eternity in heaven. So acting morally the way God decided what morality is, it would give you an eternity of bliss, I guess. I'm, I'm not sure how to imagine heaven. Um, while on the other hand, if God exists, there there is morality and you don't abide by it, you'd be risking a eternity in hell. And that's probably not the place you want to go. As I talked about before, purgatory is the best place to go since all the old philosophers that had the quote-unquote wrong religion are there. But that might just be my view. Um, and the other side of the thing is, what if God doesn't exist? All morality is just made up. What would that mean? So you'd live a moral life according to someone that doesn't exist. And you'd lose some opportunities. You would act different different in some ways but for the most part i think you'd live the same life and on the other side of the spectrum if there is no god um and you live amorally it, it wouldn't change anything other than the fact that you'll not get punished afterwards but since there's no certainty either way it's the the, the waiter basically makes you think what's the best thing you can do um, based on the two options. 
Yeah, and it's pretty tricky too because we're always dealing in systems of incomplete information. So who's to say that we should take the wager based on this belief system when someone could describe a different belief system that would create a different kind of wager that you would want to make for yourself based on a really good outcome and a really bad outcome? Yeah. So I didn't say that only God can ensure we have morals. I think that's a really wrong view. Um, but in Pascal's wager, that's how he um, puts it out to make you ponder whether or not being moral is a good or a bad thing based on if there is a God or if there's no God. You could also ask a more core source question of where does our morality come from? I think that no. gets us into some weeds, but it's a useful one to consider and one that people ask quite a bit. In my view, it has grown naturally as part of society. It's a somewhat, somewhat of a necessity for a society to organize to have certain rules and to have those rules not just as rules that will be enforced. Having it as a moral code makes things a lot easier. Because if you're always running around trying to punish people for wrongdoing, it makes life more difficult than having these inherent values and living by them. And morality is not something that is unique to humanity. You see morality in, or a sort of morality in every um, social animal. So they have a, a certain code of conduct on how they do things, which is similar to, to morality as we know it. Well, for some really basic examples that people can relate to, if you have two dogs and they're on the sharper end and you give one dog a really nice tasty snack and the other one a kind of boring vegetable, the one that gets the boring vegetable is going to feel like they kind of got gypped. They didn't really get what they what the other dog got. So they have a basic sense of fairness, even though it's not described to them that one reward is greater than the other. They can kind of tell and they can kind of feel like that's wrong. So you don't necessarily need language to understand inequality, lack of fairness. Also, when people cheat, uh, you know, some animals like a dog pees on the floor and you're upset with them, they feel shame, they know they did something wrong. So I feel like that doesn't necessarily need to be read from a book because creatures that cannot read from books have many of these basic concepts already ironed out just in their development just in their yeah. basic psychology this also stands true for humanity um, considering that literacy is somewhat of a new invention or a broad part of the um, society being literate it used to be for many um, centuries that only a small part of the population was able to read books or to write themselves so I don't think there's any need to read about morality in order to live a moral life. It's uh, adaptive behavior that you learn from other people around you and you kind of learn what's good or bad when you're being told that you shouldn't punch the other kid on the playground, for example. If anyone is punching a kid on the playground right now, please stop. <laughs> 
And it also goes nicely what we talked about before um, about how you want your chat to behave and how this is um, somewhat something that you have to both enforce but also encourage and to to have people act in a appropriate manner in your chat that it's something that they have to learn to some degree that if someone comes in and just yells at you for playing the wrong game for example that this is not appropriate behavior you have to tell them and they have to realize well maybe this wasn't the best call and then you can go from there so it it's i think all of morality is learned to some degree i think there's there is inherent morality in the sense that we have rather strong beliefs about our own worth and that we ought to be treated nicely by others but other than that how to apply that i think everything is learned Mm -hmm. um i linked the video about what you were talking with the different treats in the philosophy discord a while ago they had this experiment with giving two animals different treats to see the their reaction to this inequality and i find it super funny every time i watch it could link that in the chat um, let me see where it is reasonable time to shout out we do have a philosophy channel in the neuro discord the ted blog video two monkeys paid unequally yeah yeah i already linked it well done yeah so in, in the video you see two monkeys and one of them gets a cucumber the other one gets a grape for doing the same task. And at first, the monkey with the cucumber is perfectly happy with the reward it gets. But once it sees the other monkey getting a grape for the same task, it gets super upset and throws the uh, cucumber back at the researcher and just goes crazy within his cage. Oh man, seems like it's upset. Monkeys can throw tantrums too. Yeah. <laughs> Not just people. Um, here's my notes. So, yeah, in, in terms of how the universe existed, we're in an interesting time in space, basically, um, that we're still able to see the... Um, background radiation of the universe so we we have a means to measure how long ago the big bang happened to a certain um level of confidence yeah yeah that was what i was looking for um and this is interesting because given enough time the radiation will be so low that we won't have uh, this opportunity anymore so what we see now as humanity is when the universe started and we have a rough sense did i cut out yep but i covered you we have a rough sense 
<laughs> we have a rough sense of when the universe will end. Up to a couple billion years of certainty. Um, there's the theory of how the universe will end, which is interesting to me as well. There's basically two theories. Um, one of it is the heat death and the other one is the cold death of the universe. So since the Big Bang, everything has been expanding at a certain rate and it was believed to be accelerating. So everything getting further apart as time goes faster and faster. So as far as I know, we realize that this expansion is slowing down. And the question being if it's just something that behaves in waves where it's speeding up, slowing down, speeding up, slowing down. And we, we lack the time frame to be able to tell that. And based on what will happen, if it speeds up more or slows down more, the universe will either um, collapse into a black hole. So everything going back together into one massive black hole at the center of the universe from which another Big Bang could happen. So it's a theory that just keeps on going. We'll have a Big Bang, everything expands, everything goes back together, we'll have another Big Bang. And the other theory would be that universe keeps expanding and as things go further apart at some point, we don't have enough energy anymore in the sun's that everything will just get close to zero Kelvin, eventually zero Kelvin, nothing will be happening anymore. And everyone that's still alive, which will be no one anymore, but everyone that would still be alive would just freeze to death. And there'll be nothing left. Um, both theories are not super uplifting for humanity, I guess, because there's no way of surviving any of this. On the other hand, the time frame for this is rather large, so I can assure you it will not happen within your lifetime. Yeah, it's pretty far off. But it is a rather grim outcome. I think we would probably like to be able to run free in grassy plains and have yummy snacks and hang out with our friends and stuff like that. I think many visions of the afterlife are sort of fantasies of how we might like to exist forever if we could. And the heat death of the universe probably isn't up there among people's afterlife fantasies. <laughs> well, th this would bring us to the question of what is a soul and how does it exist within the physical realm we know it. So if we... Um, Take the stance of Christianity where we have a inherent soul and this soul will go into heaven. I don't think this is contradicting um, the possibility of having a um, endless life after death because a soul can be something that is outside of the realm of physics as we know it and it could go on even beyond the dying of the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a way that I would envision that if I was taking the Christian perspective, for example, would be that God made all the souls in their kind of in their own realm, and he has a physical realm that he made where he basically puts the souls there in physical form to test their 
piety, their righteousness, their goodness, and their worth for being in heaven. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive in that way. There are plenty of things that we could list that are troublesome for the validity of Christianity or that other thing. But yeah, in this case, I could see that working. Yeah, I don't want to um, focus the conversation around whether or not theism has merit. I think it, it, it definitely has merit in terms of um, applied morality, in terms of giving people a sense of community. And I don't want to attack anyone's um, religious beliefs about whether or not they'll have an afterlife or not. I don't believe in it. I don't see much value in having an eternity afterlife. Um very much going with the view that I want to do the best out of my life. What happens after the call drops? Where do we go? <laughs> Am I back? We go beyond. Hello. And you're back. Ah, All right. Yeah, so I want to live my life as best as I can for the time frame um, certain I'm given, which probably another five years or so. Um, and still live a moral life so I don't want to go like as we talked about before in Pascal's Wager I want to live a good life both by my own standards and by some external standards but in case there's no afterlife I want to make the best out of the life I have now yeah a way that I've thought about this is the density and intensity of experience and how the most intense experience that you have is the present moment and it's often the one that's the most overlooked because people are either focusing on what they've done in the past or what they would like to do in the future but those are never going to be as rich as the right now so there is the i guess head in the clouds or head in the sand issue that you can have when you just want to keep your head on your shoulders and try to move in a reasonable direction for yourself. And also stop, smell the flowers, say hi to your friends, laugh about. Presence of mind is good. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, so if there's any question about why we have a universe, feel free to ask them now. Um, yeah, I think we can enter it to the degree we already have. Beyond that, it's really difficult on why anything decided to exist, if it decided that. On the other hand, if there's nothing that existed, what's the point of having this conversation? So I think we can be rather certain that there is a universe and we'll, we are some part of that. Does it have a greater meaning? Maybe so. I doubt we can ever know for sure. But there is a universe, so we might as well enjoy it. Um, yeah, the next thing I wanted to address since Twitch chat, for one reason or another, really likes its conspiracy theories, is why are planets shaped like they are? And I want to start, start out with saying, no, it is a globe. So that being said, um, there's one other theory I have that the 
Earth is a giant Mabius loop. And if you ever want to try to experience that yourself, just get really drunk and try to get someplace. You will realize it always takes you two loops to get to where you want to go. That's pretty good. Well, the thing that I saw in the movie K-Pax, he asked a similar question. Why is a soap bubble round? And that's because it's the most energy efficient configuration. So if you have the force of gravity as perhaps the most foundational one in our universe, that's going to be pulling toward a point from all directions, which a sphere would be the most logical and efficient way to collect some mass of a thing. So that would be why stars and planets are both mostly spherical. There's a fancier word for it. Maybe someone knows what that is. Because it's not a perfect sphere. It's kind of lumpy. I know that the planet we're living on is called a geoid. I'm not sure if that's a English term though. But that's the, the technical term for a not ball-shaped ball, where it's just like squished and has some sticky mountains and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, gravity will make do the work that things come together as round because it's, as you said, the most efficient shape there is. Which brings me to my point about the goal that humanity should follow, which is to build a giant cube into space. I'm talking star size or even galaxy size cube, just because we can, and to spite the roundness of the universe. Also, it would um, promote a lot of jobs, will be a good thing. It might not be an efficient thing or meaningful in any way, but it's worth a try. Geoid to ellipsoid, an ellipsoid to sphere. Cool. Yeah, confirmation on the geoid. Yeah. Yeah, so now that we've established that we live on a round thingy that isn't flat, I I find that theory super interesting for some reason, that it's, it's something that people want to believe in, I'm not sure how that comes, but yeah, I think we can move on from that. Um, so we have a universe, and the next thing that comes into the picture is, why is there life? And this is probably even bigger question than why is the universe? Why would the universe decide to have living things in it? For me, it comes down to the same question. There's no point not having living things, because then there would nothing would be here to experience the universe but the the origin of life and how we got here is an interesting question to um, look into am i cutting out again you're good all right so yeah what are your theories on why life exists So basically, it's a snowball of complexity where you have the most basic building blocks and given enough time and energy swirling around, they're going to bump into each other to the point where they're going to be the next most complex thing, which would be 
what, two protons and neutrons worth of stuff. So you're gradually and gradually getting more and more complex over time to the point where you start to get organic compounds, which are the building blocks for living things, but not living yet. And then continuing on that front further and further to the point where you get something that is able to move about and eventually replicate itself. So that takes a ridiculous amount of time. And I think the amount of time that that has taken is so long that it's not really within the realm of human intuition. We don't know what a billion years feels like because we think usually in terms of minutes, hours, days, weeks, and years. Sometimes you can think about a decade, but I think that's a stretch for a lot of people. So yeah. given the raw size, the vast expanse of the universe, there's bound to be some weird stuff that happens here or there. And we haven't found an abundance of life all around our solar system. We found quite a bit of it on our planet, but it's not super common. So since it's complex, it makes sense that it would be pretty rare. But it doesn't seem to me like it's intentional. A lot of stuff is accidental. Sometimes it's selfish in nature. And nature is not, I would say, righteous or just by default. It's basically driven by survival first and then other things after that. So, yeah, the reason that we have diversity of species is basically because if you give enough time and you have enough different kinds of things, they're going to ram into each other and get more and more complex. And it's also going to reward uh, cleverness and strength and other kinds of attributes, resilience of a creature to the point where the strong survive and the weak die. It's a pretty brutal format, but... Nature is pretty scary. Yeah, it's a giant PvP server. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, the interesting question here is, and you addressed this, the, the likelihood of life appearing. And there's a somewhat famous formula of the likelihood of um, exoplanets with life on them, which is... A useful construct, on the other hand, it, it's super unreliable. It starts out by looking at the number of stars, how many of those stars have um, planets, and how many of those planets will be within the inhabitable um, zone from such a star. So there's X number of planets that will have the likelihood of life appearing and then there's another number they put in for the actual likelihood of something like life happening which is a number they put on the stability of the internet today what's the number they put on it um where was i when i cut out you were saying there's a number they put on something and then you were going to tell us what it was, and we were all guessing the number. Right. So Exoplanets gonna, and life. Yeah, so I, I'm going to start from the beginning. So there's X number of um, galaxies with X numbers of sun, with X numbers of planets to those suns. Of all those planets, 
a certain amount is within the habitable zone from the sun, so there's a possibility of life occurring. And then you multiply that with the actual probability of life occurring, which is a number of somewhere between 1 and 0.00001. And that gives you the number of um, planets that have life on them in the universe. So all of this is made up, but it, it gives us an idea of there's a endless amount of planets where life would be possible. And then it's up to our imagination or at some point up to our discoveries um, in the universe to see how likely it is for life to be occurring. If it's just something that happens naturally given a long enough time scale, or if it's something that's so random that it will only happen in really specific cases. Well, even if it does happen in specific cases, the universe is so large, then it's probably fairly abundant. Hmm, I think so too. I think it, it's, it would be weird if we're the only planet that has life on it. I'd say it would be even weirder if we're the only planet that has um, intelligent life on it, if other planets have um, life on them too. It'd be kind of nice though, gives us some um, human exceptionalism, which I'm not sure we don't already have enough of. But yeah, with the scale of the universe, it seems fairly likely that there's other inhabited planets. And I'm not sure if we'll ever be able to realize this or to, to get a good view on this, if we'll ever meet other cultures. Um, aliens, basically. I'm not sure on the likelihood of that. Or if One thing did... that I've unpacked a little bit talking with friends about the existence of aliens is I think a lot of times when people say the word aliens, they automatically assume that it's a spacefaring, very intelligent species that has language and could talk to us when it could also be a sort of jellyfish, like just something that does exist. It's technically life. Maybe it is a little bit smarter and they could have bioluminescence and they glow at each other, but they have pretty simple interactions. It doesn't necessarily have to be a peer in that sense. And the flip side is they could be so much smarter than us that it would be painfully boring for them to interact. That's another thing that sci-fi shows and movies do a lot, which is kind of annoying, is they put the aliens on par with us a whole bunch where it's just going to take a little bit of human spirit and gumption and then we can fight against them. <laughs> Rather than something that is just multiple tiers above us in terms of development and we're basically just at their mercy. So that's another thing that I think is a narrative device. It's fun to have a close battle between us and aliens, but like we have no idea. Yeah. I think it makes for a better story than just what happens in Hitchhiker's Guide for the Galaxy where they uh, blow up the planet in order to make a highway. But mm -hmm. it gives you a sense of how far um, another civilization could be and that they just don't care about us. Which mm -hmm. would make sense, I guess. We only care about our own kind.
Which brings up an interesting point about having an alien invasion. I think it would be arguably the best thing that could happen for humanity in terms of bringing us together and stop with the infighting because we have a enemy that we can unite against. And if we're able to defeat them, we'll start the infighting again eventually. It's similar to the lore of World of Warcraft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every time there's a huge invasion by the Burning Legion, the Horde and the Alliance team up and they defeat them and it's really awesome teamwork high five. And then once the enemies go away, then it's like, well, I guess we should fight each other again. No. You know, because fighting each One other really is fun. interesting uh, idea behind um, likelihood of life on other planets or how we can go on, um, how we bring humanity beyond um, our own planet is I think we'd already be somewhat able to do this, but we'll definitely be able to do this in a not all too distant future. Not to pack a spaceship full of people and go to a different planet, but to send a small probe with some bacteria to another planet that has the possibilities of life. And again, giving a large enough timescale out of that bacteria might evolve something human-like again, or there might evolve giant jellyfish or whatever it will be that will fit that planet best and will inhabit it. I think that's a, a fairly interesting theory because in my view, that's how humanity could have come into existence because we're kind of unsure on why life first emerged. So we might be the offspring of some other society that decided, well, this is a nice planet. We'll send some bacteria there and see what happens. Uh, yeah, I think Prometheus lore is kind of similar to that. The idea yeah. that earth was seeded with living organisms from somewhere else we can't rule it out that's the funny thing about a lot of these questions is well i don't have any evidence that that's the case but i also can't rule it out so you can believe that if you want to <laughs> yeah so the interesting question there would be um if we are an offspring of another society they they sent us here by means of sending bacteria here would that how does that relate to having a god or a a master race as they have it in prometheus or if it's just random occurring um that humanity came out of this and they have no means of controlling it they also have no means of um viewing what they did they just sh shot some bacteria into space and things happened from that You heard it here. Believe in whichever narrative is the most entertaining. I think that's not the worst view of the world. <laughs> yeah, one yes. thing that if I can give a personal anecdote. So my background is being raised Protestant Christian, also young earth creationist, which I think is a it's not across the board for people of that religious orientation. I was warned about the temptations and the evils of teaching about evolution and that life came about by natural causes. And the thing that really surprised me the most whenever I enrolled in university and started attending my classes was how heckin' boring they were. 
<laughs> Evolution by natural selection is a painstaking process. It is not glamorous. It takes so long and it's it's random. There is selection. It's shaped by the energy niches and who's being the most successful, but for how long it takes to have stuff happen, it's not sexy. It's not exciting. It's really boring. So I was like, wow, why would you tempt people with something so boring? Maybe this is true. It's so boring. It must be true. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, it, it's not a sexy theory. Yeah, so going on from the basic necessities of life existing, I think it's interesting to explore why are humans, how did we get here? Why do we dominate the meta of the the global PvP these days? And if this will always persist? Um, are you familiar with Tiersu? Tiersu? Yeah, it's a YouTube channel that does compare different um, builds in the current and former meta of the um, globe. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw one of those. Maybe you shared it with me, actually, of why humans are the most successful now, like what their edges were. Yeah, that might be. Yeah, that was really I think, cool. I find they're super funny. And they talk about a lot on how humans got to the place in the quote-unquote game um, by a couple of different means. And so kind of looking a bit closer at how humanity developed mm -hmm. and what's the big differences between us and all other animals is interesting. Also from the perspective of the likelihood of something like uh, humanity appearing on a planet, it, if it's a good concept to have intelligence, to have tool use, to ha have bipedalism. And there's a lot of good reasons to do that. I think we humanity showed that we're rather successful at what we do. On the other hand, if this is a likely scenario to happen, it's not something we can answer at this point. So let's look at the different traits that you make humans so successful. Um, the first of them, or the, I guess, the oldest, is bipedalism. Bipedalism is, from a building perspective, it makes a organism a lot more difficult to balance. So it, it takes some brain power in order to balance a build that just stands on two legs. It's very nice to, to be way further above ground so you see any enemy that tries to sneak up on you and it makes you reach fruits that are higher up it makes it enables you to use your hands to gather things and bring them places other than standing on, on four legs and having no no means to do so other than with your mouth so as a build for a social um, animal is really nice because a lot of different humans can go out, gather different things, bring them back to the um, cave they live in, and then share them. Got two limbs to carry, two limbs to walk. Sounds good. 
And you could even do like a dog and hold something in your mouth at the same time. (laughs) Exactly. The other thing about bipedalism and not having any fur is human sweat. And not many, there's some animal that sweat to some degree, but not to the extent that humans do. Um, The combination of those two gives us the most endurance out of all beings we know. So we might not be able to outrun uh, a cheetah, but we'll catch up with it eventually. And then it will be um, regenerating its stamina and we'll be able to hunt it down that way. So there's no animal that a human can't technically outrun um, over a long distance. And this makes us fairly successful at hunting things, especially if we hunt in a group. I think there would be a few exceptions to that. Uh, depending on the environment so we can't do that in the water and we can't do that if it's extremely cold i would guess that maybe a wolf or a deer or something could outrun us in a extremely cold like polar climate now i i guess there's certain exceptions i think in the cold isn't as problematic in the water it's it, it's not our environment so we stand a little chance there but in the cold since we it's a lot easier to track an animal in the cold i think we'd be doing rather well otherwise we wouldn't have survived all the ice ages that's a good point Well, this uh, segment is dedicated to all the people who self-identify as not being runners. (laughs) I've heard that a lot, and I know that maybe you don't like running, and it's totally fair to say, I don't enjoy running, and I don't want to do it, and you can't make me do it. High five to you. Go do your thing. If you want to do something else, cycle or not. Do as you like, but anatomically speaking, we do have a, a big edge of efficiency there. The problem is... Just because we can do it doesn't mean that it feels good directly. It is pretty unpleasant to be running, but if you want to survive, you're going to have to eat some food, and sometimes that involves working for it and chasing something down in a state of nature, hunter-gatherer society, of course. Yeah. And then the other big thing that humans do that isn't unique to us, but we're doing it a lot more efficiently, is tool use. So there's a bunch of different animals that are able to use tools. We have really good hands in order to use tools. You can check this. If you can um, reach with your thumb to all your other fingers, that's not something a monkey can do. And it enables us to have a grip that isn't as good for climbing, but is really good for small tasks. It's really good for doing things with our hand that really are good not for using tools but i can guess what he's saying hello our thumb isn't good for climbing but it's really good for using tools i'm guessing yeah for for doing small tasks something that doesn't need as much strength but um a lot of fingerspitzing gefühl which i find funny that there's no english word for that um, <laughs> Yeah, when it gets to really small tasks like sorting things or um, using a needle and thread, like the hands we have are perfect for this. But we're not as efficient climbers in exchange. And we're not good at running on all four legs anymore for some reason. Although it's not necessary anymore, I guess. 
Yeah, you can try. It's pretty awkward. Yeah. <laughs> and from the start of tool use, we started with uh, stone tools being able to uh, crack open things. And then we tool use got more sufficient over time. And we were the first one to bring ranged weapon into um, the into existence where we invented spears in order to hunt things down which is really nice because it brings you out of the melee range of your enemies so having spears and being able to throw them really hard was super effective for humans and it's something you you would think that a monkey or a gorilla is able to throw things too and yes they are but not with the same efficiency or accuracy as we do. They mostly just lob things. And we are really built with a um, longer upper body and shorter arms in order to be super efficient at throwing things. Uh, this doesn't apply to all people. I'm pretty terrible at throwing things. I have also read some things too about how we tend to focus on getting better at throwing with practice that's just kind of a natural drive for humans so stuff like playing darts against your friends and things like that that competitive aspect of trying to be accurate is i would say part of human nature rather than specifically conditioned yeah we tend to notice patterns a lot so if you're looking for a certain outcome and you fail then you're naturally going to try to make a couple adjustments and then try again. Yeah. And the last thing that makes us super unique is our level of intelligence and how we decide to use it through language to through teaching others what we learned ages ago, like how to use a spear properly or how to use your um, two legs in order to run places really fast or run from something really fast. Also, what to run from or what to run towards. So um, learning as a skill for humanity has been hugely successful. And I think you can probably uh, better than I can talk about the development of the brain, like what different parts exist in what different kinds of animals and how we're unique due to having a frontal lobe. Yep, lots of other animals do have a frontal lobe, but the prefrontal cortex for us is absolutely massive compared to other creatures. We are weaker in the visual cortex and auditory cortex of some other creatures, but we do have language centers and things like that to break down a lot of the information that we're taking in. There's a difference too between the ability for a creature to take in stimulus, so be able to detect a range of sound or to detect certain um, bits of light and color and things like that, versus the processing side, which is how the brain is interpreting the information that's coming in. And that's really where we shine, is where we can see what's happening, not just for what it is, but then kind of going to the core question of this discussion, seeing why things are happening a certain way. And if there's any way that you can capitalize on that or exploit that, that benefits your survival and the survival of your tribe. Uh, one thing that wasn't discussed yet was some of the costs of having a large brain. 
we did a trade-off with our digestive tract compared to a lot of other great ape species. Our digestive tract is way shorter and we innovated cooking to offset that. So normally you just have to break down the raw food over a greater amount of time, but we can cook things, which is pre-digestion. We're digesting that with the heat and whatnot. And then we can eat stuff. And then the other major cost is developing the brain after birth. Most animals are basically good to go. Like you see a horse that's born, plops on the ground, flails about a bit, and then stands up, and then it can basically move around. A human baby is totally defenseless for years, pretty much. It's just something that you absolutely have to give 24-7 care to. And a big part of that is the brain is still developing in really crucial ways. So that's something that definitely required us to be pretty smart and also pretty successful already is to be able to defend our young because that not only is vulnerable for the child, it's also vulnerable for the mother and the family and the tribe. Yeah, really nice job of pointing out the weak points of um, having intelligence the, to the degree we have it. And one aspect of this, especially the the child care that we need is that we're social animals so one human by itself will not really do well i think it can survive for a certain period of time but it, we really thrive in a social environment and that's because we have division of labor and division of labor developed really early on in humanity i think it was or I guess it was mostly uh, cut along of um, uh, gender lines back in the days where there were men were more likely to be um, hunting and women were, were more likely to be gathering. That isn't to, to say that those were clear lines and I think everyone did a bit of everything. And with the development of agriculture we started to split into much more specific roles and much more specific jobs and as a society we gather that we can have some people um, take care of the food while other people take care of building houses while other people take care of um, looking after the kids for example and this is one of our biggest strengths that we we split up our society into different roles and have people specialize in those roles and therefore grow as a society more so than as unique humans. Yep. Language and writing, super, super strong too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think language we don't have a means to determine when language as we know it started to exist but we have a good sense of when writing started which is somewhere between seven and eight thousand years ago is when we have the first scribbles on a wall that we can um, read as a writing um, and then there's really um Languages that we still understand today, which is Chinese, 
Chinese is awesome. They started um, really putting a lot of effort into their own language and starting to to keep old books and to to really gather knowledge that way uh, a lot better than other cultures. And the first writings we have from them date back like 5,000 years. Uh, sorry, 7,000 years or 5,000 before Christ. But most of them are not um, we don't have them stored anymore so they, they date back we know they already had this language back then but we don't have writings of that time in, anymore um, one interesting question here would be the writing we have nowadays mostly existing on our screens <coughs> excuse me um, it's not really well to conserve the knowledge on our computer. I think if you ever try to use a floppy disk on your computer now, you run into some problems. We'll have similar issues 100 years from now where it gets super difficult to understand what the code was back then and how to interpret the different signs and emojis people were using. And I, I want to emphasize the value of still having paper books, especially for knowledge, because in the unlikely case that something would happen to the internet or to um, electricity as we know it, having a means of still having that knowledge in a paper form would be really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way that I've thought about it is our power level collectively has been ramping up generation by generation because you can save a lot of the useful things that we learned and also discard some of the stuff that uh, was bad and bears not repeating. Or you can just repeat the mistakes of the previous generation. We're pretty good at that too. Now, I was just about to bring up Flat Earth again. So in terms of discarding old theories that aren't as useful, we, we tend to hang on to those as well for some reason. Yeah, so we live in groups and living in groups not only has benefits, it also has problems. Um, bringing us back to the question of morality and how we organize as a social group, which has been a, an issue that we've been struggling with for all the time we ha had on the planet. And we're always trying to develop a, a good sense of um, social cohesion and to, to organize ourselves in a way that will work for most people. And I'd say we're doing a pretty good job at it. We could do better still, but it's like the morality we have and how we apply it to the world is something that develops over time. And we're constantly changing our view of the world and our view of morality in order to make sense of everything and to to organize um, society around the the things that we can't change go people go So. I think there's a lot of uh, room too for the attitude that you have toward our species because being a human is a card that we were effectively dealt. There was no character selection screen and this is something that I think for gamers is a, a fun mental exercise is you think about your reality 
as though it were part of a video game. What kind of game is this? Is this balanced? Is this fair and reasonable? Should we complain to the devs? I think there's a lot to complain about to the developers. Being a human is a really powerful card deal to get. You've got some really awesome stats. You have probably the highest level of safety of any creature, even though we do have a lot of danger around us still. You can perceive experience in ways that involve language and thought across generations by reading what other people have thought about and then building off that with your own experience. So personally, it feels pretty cool to me to be a human, but we do have lots of problems as well. Yeah, also yeah, but... not not all humans get the, the same possibilities from the start of the game. So some humans um, get a lot more open server to work with while others are born into a PvP server, which makes life a lot more difficult. So just um, choosing a human on the um, select screen at the beginning will not necessarily give you the most advantages but it, it will give you a lot of advantages you wouldn't have unless you choose something like being in the deep sea, which is unexplored by the humans yet. So you, at least you don't have to deal with humans, which I think is the best you can do as another species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was kind of wrestled in my teenage years thinking about how certain people are dealt a really strong hand in terms of a good family life, safety growing up. Maybe they're gifted and talented in certain ways. Maybe they run faster and jump higher than other people. I noticed in my school class that it wasn't that the most righteous and good children were the most successful in sports. Some kids were just bigger. They just developed faster in puberty and then got ahead of the curve and set the records at the school, but that wasn't a fair process that was decided by their actions and their merits. It was basically some people had a knack for it. That's part of our reality. And if there are developers of this game listening, like, come on, like, what is that? <laughs> I've been practicing twice as long as this person and I still can't run as fast as them. How is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, this, there's, that's certainly true. On the other hand, I think as humans, there's not really a reason to balance wine. I think we're getting the better end of it, similar to Protoss. If I, if the, the talk on the internet is to be trusted. <laughs> I would say complaining about Protoss is just tradition. Oftentimes it's tough to tell which race is overpowered. So you just say Protoss kind of so that you can complete the sentence. All right. Yeah. I haven't played myself in a long while. Well, so, it is my uh, lowest win rate right now, so there's one piece of evidence. <laughs> <laughs> I think they do a fairly good job at balancing it. I think what's interesting to me in terms of StarCraft and how it's balanced there is do you make the game to be competitive at the um, top scene or do you make it to be enjoyable for people that just started the game and as you talked about a bunch is that if you lose um, mid game to a certain push it's probably not to having a 
playing a weaker race, but it is due to um, doing other problems. So I think balancing it for the high tier players is the most reasonable thing to do. But some things then in turn will be interpreted as being super OP unless you are at that level and can compete um, on a high level of the game. Yeah, they've basically pitched this as being a game that is made to be played at the highest level and everyone can try their best to do that, but they're not going to balance the game for every tier like so that all the games in gold league feel fair and all the games in platinum league feel fair and so on through all the leagues they're just going to be looking at the top results and the top ladder and seeing if there are any things that they need to fix but yeah it's uh it's generally speaking best to focus on what you can change and this goes back to one of our previous topics was understanding your sphere of control and being able to focus your energy and your effort on things that can actually be productive for you rather than to get caught up in, well, I wish this circumstance was different, but it's not my place to change it. Yeah. I think another important question to ask here is what is fair in this context? And from my understanding, winning 50% of your games is fair. So you're always in a place where it gets challenging, but you're still able to win. But if your uh, perception of the game being fair is that you win 75% of the games, it, it's hard to cater to that. Mm -hmm. But I, I can get where they're coming from. It's nice to win a game of StarCraft. Yeah, it's very satisfying. That is a great example of tasks that are more satisfying because they're more difficult. When things get trivially easy, when it pops up a winner screen, you don't really feel that amazing about it. I'm not trying to talk shit, but when you win a match of Hearthstone, it does this hooray, and then there are like trumpets that pop out and confetti that falls and you get a card pack and all this kind of stuff, but it doesn't feel the same as winning a match in Silver League and StarCraft. Because in StarCraft, you're just stressed beyond belief and even if your opponent isn't amazing and you're not amazing, you're still trying your best and trying to play as fast as you can. And to win is really satisfying. Yeah. And that's one of the issues I had when I still used to play, that there's... I think I, I win 50% of the game, lose another 50%, but it was rare that I felt I won a game because we were evenly matched and I really did play my best other than just me getting um, an edge in economy early on and then just doing protos things to, to, to win the game from there. Mm -hmm. But the, those few games that we, we when we were evenly matched, they're super rewarding. Yeah, a fun thing to experience is a good game that you didn't win but you got to play your best and there was a lot of back and forth so it felt like the the best form of contest i think the absolute best win is one that's extremely close and you beat a player who is on average slightly better than yourself and you just barely get the win those are pretty awesome 
guess this is kind of the the why of competitive games. Why do people play competitive StarCraft when it's so dang stressful? Why do game companies usually favor games that are more accessible and easy? Yeah. Um, are the fighter chats audible? Are you in a fighter chat right now, dude? No, but there's a bunch of them going um, overhead because World Economic Forum and they have to keep the airspace safe Ooh. for some reason. That's awesome. I think it's a, an excuse for the pilots to get to fly around, to be honest. It's probably really so. fun to fly around in those planes. So <laughs> if I was a pilot, I would want to keep the airspace safe too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, now, the security that they, they build up for the forum, which is four days technically, um, it, it's just crazy. You like the valley I'm living in has two main entrances and one other one that goes over a pass, so that's not really a thing. And you have to go through two to three security checkpoints where they check your car, they check your credentials, they check your ID. Um, every time you go through them and it's impossible to get in or out of town during this week unless you have all those credentials it's it's not impossible but you're making your life really hard mm-hmm. and they're they build a um landing port for helicopters where the really important people will land they have a bunch of those towers with sharpshooters that will keep everything safe yeah, it's crazy. Interesting to see, though. Like, they built all of this up um, in roughly 10 days before the forum starts, and then they will break everything down again after the forum has ended. So it's about a period of three to four weeks where the whole town changes completely and then will change back again. Um, I'm going to take a quick bio break and you can talk about the why of, I don't know, anything you want to talk about. Nice. Will do. But why though? But why did this warrior leave the group? They're helping to summon be right back. Do you have any why questions for me? But why, Nero? Why do you do that? Why do you do different kinds of content? But why, though? Why do you not stream 16 hours a day? You're interested in how? The how of what? How you play StarCraft while holding your breath underwater? Why did you pick up streaming? Because I felt like I had a message that I wanted to be heard. And streaming is an avenue for that. So 
you could say that there are lots of different reasons to stream on Twitch. Some people wanted to do it to be famous. Uh, some people wanted to do it for money, which I think is a tricky one. Uh, earlier on in Twitch, the ad revenue was absurdly good. So it was very lucrative to stream in the early days. I was not streaming then though. So for me to stream, it was not a money move. It was actually hitting the low end of my earning potential based on my education level and my age for when I started. But it felt really fulfilling for me in a lot of capacities. One of them was being able to play StarCraft fuels my competitive fire and makes me feel really satisfied with that part of myself. I do like competing. I like racing against people in cross country and track. I like boxing. I like American football. I really like competition and StarCraft is the best for competitive gaming 1v1. In my opinion, there are some other games that are really good 1v1 competition, like fighting games, but StarCraft just feels so broad and comprehensive for a competitive experience that by streaming StarCraft, I got to live out the greatest number of aspects of myself, which would be for one, I really like the showmanship of live streaming, being able to entertain, to engage with people, to excite them, to inspire them, to have something fun going on all the time. That's a really fun challenge for me. And I do have some gifts with stuff like the ability to do funny voices really well. That's something that I felt like if I went into a research field, I wouldn't be able to leverage that on a daily basis. I mean, yeah, I could joke with my friends or do something funny when people come into the research lab. But yeah, overall, I wouldn't get to live out that aspect of myself. So with streaming, it's being able to hit a purpose, which is to bring dialogue to the gaming scene about mental maturity, about kindness to other people, about tilt management, and just referencing the old lore of things like Sun Tzu, Art of War, Miyamoto Musashi, Bruce Lee, who ironed out a lot of these basic concepts of being a competitor and being someone who can get shit done. And learning those old lessons was something that other streamers weren't doing. So I basically saw an open niche in a field where I felt like I could thrive on a regular basis and really love what I do. There are plenty of downsides to it. And the thing that I would say is the biggest one that is missed by your average person who doesn't understand what streaming is really like is they think that a streaming career is flipping on a camera and getting to play video games and people throw you money. When in reality, it's an entertainment gig and you're on stage in front of tens of people, hundreds of people or thousands of people, and you're trying to captivate their attention for long periods of time against the other channels that are live and also against all the other shows that they could watch and all the other games they could play, which is really difficult. You have to have it be quite dank and interesting in some capacity to be competitive and carve out a space for yourself in this really competitive market. So just because my son has a YouTube channel, nope, <laughs> he's not going to be a big success of a streamer just because he has a YouTube channel. He made a Minecraft video. You do need some skills in charisma and talking to people and having some pizzazz. So it's a performance art. It's not just a 
a bunch of dirty esports money. <laughs> yeah, I think people fail to see all the extra work that goes into streaming. That is when you're not on camera, or yeah. when you're when you're not live. And I assume that there's bunch happening behind the scenes to make everything look nice to to know what you will be doing or to to coordinate with other people you're working with that is yeah cannot be understated so the last point and i think there's a bunch of other different points we could go into in terms of the why question um why we um organize as a site as a society the way we do is something interesting but one thing i want to go into is the economy why does it work why is it the way it is and how did it did it get to this the point that we are now where it's so big it started to have a life of its own and we don't really know what's happening but for some reason or another it's at least somewhat working and i, I find this to be a really interesting topic to to kind of see how this developed so nero why does the economy work basically because People have needs for things that are way too inconvenient for them to do themselves. So that incentivizes and rewards specialization and mass production. So if you are in a simple capacity, someone who trades in furs, it's better to be able to focus on that 100% and just only trap and kill animals and sell the furs rather than to be someone who does that and also farms and also does military and things like this. So basically we're incentivized to specialize because it makes us way more time efficient. It does limit the individual and their ability to accomplish everything on their own, but there are so many goddamn people on the planet. That's not really a problem for us. Yeah. And it's a great answer. I would have gone a bit of a, a different place in order to um, characterize why it works. In my opinion, it works because it grew really naturally over a long period of time. The complexity that we have now has not always been the place. So we started out as hunter-gatherers and specialized over time. We started to exchange things for um, different values. And the economy as we know it now is just a big developmental gap from this initial trading that we started with a couple of I guess 100,000 years ago and we're always reorganizing it in, in small capacities and trying to fix it and trying to, to make it work a bit more smooth going forward and so the economy works because we, we never fucked it up to the degree where it wouldn't work anymore we tried well, though. <laughs> yeah, there are some points in the chat that it doesn't work and they're pointing out problems. He's saying that it works. He's not saying that it works well or works perfectly. Yeah. It's running and we're expanding. Is it messy? Of course it's messy. It's extremely messy. Is it wasteful? It's incredibly wasteful, yes. But is it ridiculously effective? 
for just the raw production of stuff for us compared to any other animal species, yeah, it's super effective. Yeah. Yeah, if I say the economy works, doesn't mean I agree with what the economy does or I, I think that it is necessarily a good thing how it works, but it is working. Otherwise, we wouldn't be watching um, people from another country on a screen while sitting at home eating a bag of chips. <laughs> it's just, if you look what's in front of you right now and you see more than three things, the economy is working. Uh, if you don't see more than three things, get more things because we're good at doing things. Also, things are nice. They can be. Unless <laughs> those things are scorpions and they're attacking you. That's not very nice. No, there, there's things that aren't as nice. Also, not having too big of an attachment about things is a great thing to have. We talked about this when we talked about Buddhism, for example. So not being too attached to things is probably a good thing. Then again, there's some really useful things. And I guess all of us are somewhat attached to things um, just by the fact that we're on the internet being able to watch something. Like, for example, having a computer screen and a computer, if you don't have a mouse for it, you're already doing yourself a disservice. You've been so, quoted. Things are nice, Ache Fatum. Things are wisdom. nice. <laughs> I, like I'm, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of just accumulating a bunch of stuff. But then there's really nice stuff, and I, I like stuff. And I'm not apologetic for that. Um, yeah, so in, in terms of how the, um, the economy developed, there's a, a couple of really interesting points that we can look at. Um, so when we first started, we started gathering things. We lived in small social groups. So everything, everyone was gathering things for everyone else. There was still somewhat of a um, unbalance in distribution, I guess, the more effective hunters or the more effective gatherers got more based on being able to punch people harder unless they get what they wanted. But we worked it out to the degree where everyone got at least enough to survive for the most part. So we, we were able to develop as a social group because we were able to split up the things that we got, that we gathered and um, give them to other people as well in exchange for, for the things they gathered. Which is nice. Like it's not something that um, is often in nature that animals are as good as sh at sharing as people are. Then again, there's some people that are really terrible at sharing. So I'm I'm not sure what to make out of that. You cut out, but it reminds me of not just sharing goods, but also experiences. You cut out for a second, but you said yeah. there's examples of other animals sharing. I was thinking about you can also share not just goods, but also experiences and services that are not items. Yeah. So an example that comes to mind is pretty basic grooming behavior. Like a lot of times one uh, creature, say a mama lion, will groom the cubs and stuff. That's not something that is a direct reward for her, but it's 
a nice thing that is an exchange that benefits the other. And sometimes you get paid back. It's not directly economy, but that sort of exchange is pretty widespread throughout nature. Yeah. Um, I like the uh, comment here in terms of things that we have, which are not the kind of things you necessarily hold in your hand. Things like toilets, plumbing, electricity, which made a big influence on the survivability of humans, like having the possibility to to heat up your place during winter and not freeze to death, or having the um, the health benefits from not having um, your uh, facial matter around in your place is hugely beneficial. And it's one of the main reasons that we had such a population growth ever since the Industrial Revolution. Um, this combined with the um, the changes in medicine and how good we are at keeping our kids alive. Yep, I think tap water is one of those inventions that I was recently taking a pass at appreciating. It is probably the best beverage you could have, assuming you're in a place that has good water filtration and stuff, which is not universal yet, but in Seattle, at least, our water is really nice and it's extremely cheap and you can just flip a faucet and it appears. So comparing that with the amount of effort it would require to actually clean your water by boiling it first and all that, and also the time it would take, that is ridiculously convenient. It is a thing and it's a very nice thing. And it's a thing that's off the back of lots of human progress over time, innovation, engineering, and construction. So to all people involved in getting running water to people's homes that's clean and drinkable, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> You're a civil it's, engineer. Yeah, it's part of my job as a civil engineer. <laughs> <laughs> so he's allowed to say you're welcome there, okay. Um, yeah, there's one interesting study I read a while back and it talks about um, the information we can gather from drinking tap water. Um, don't want to say anything about the validity of the study and how applicable this is. I'm not enough of a scientist to tell that, but I found it an interesting study. Um, and what they were trying to point out is that we're by drinking local tap water, um, we have a built-in system to learn about the surrounding environment, like learning about certain poisons that are more um, like things that are local to the area that are important for human development to some reason or another, that we're learning about these things by drinking the local water as well. And that if you look at different waters from different areas that you can learn all sorts of different or your body will learn all, all sorts of different information um, based on the water you drink which is really interesting. Kind of sounds similar to having honey from your local area. It has certain pollen and stuff in it that makes it less likely that you'll have allergic reactions to the pollen in the air. I haven't read a ton of hard science on that, but that's something someone told me, so I tend to try to do that. Yeah, yeah I think it's a similar concept. And it would make sense, in my opinion, that we learn from 
from such things. And one good example I can give here to um, validate that theory is when you're breastfeeding. Um, there's a certain amount of um, backwash of spit um, and your breasts will get information from that on the um, health of your baby and what it needs and what it doesn't need. And it will adjust your milk production um, to give your baby more of what it needs what and less so of what do? it doesn't need. So that there's some feedback loops we have built in that we're not aware of, but they're there and they kind of work without our knowledge of it, which is super interesting. Um, yeah, economy. So the one of the biggest invention in the economy is having things to like universal things to trade for. The main example here being money, but this hasn't always been money. Like people used to own big chunks of rock, and it was just clear who owned whose uh, whose rock, and you can transfer the ownage of said rock to someone else. And then, you know, I know, um, I own Nora's rock and it's a big rock. So therefore I have a lot of um, purchasing power, which is a, a nice way of doing things. Um, but we found out rather early on that it's nice to have something universal to trade things for. So the invention of money. And it used to be coins for the longest of time or seashells or anything other that you could touch and you could store easily and you wouldn't have to fear that it deteriorates. So paper money was a rather late invention. It was invented by the Chinese. In order to validate it, um, when they first started using paper money, they wrote a death threat on it. So it's basically, um, this is money if you don't see this as money will kill you, which is a good way of implementing paper money, I guess. Uh, it, it makes it a lot easier for people to to adapt to it if there's, all right, it's this or death. It might not be the nicest of ways to do it, but it was effective, that's for sure. And with the invention of money, we were able to trade many things for many other things. So the the basic problem when trading is, let's say I gather a bunch of apples and I want a pair of shoes from you, but you don't care about apples. I would have to find someone else that has something you want, trade for that and then trade back. It makes the, the process really complicated depending on what you your needs are and what my needs are. And if we have something that we can get back to that everyone agrees this has value, we, I can exchange for that and exchange back to you for something. So it, it just streamlines the process and makes it a lot easier. And it doesn't imply that money itself has inherent value beyond its trade capacity, which is something that people are not necessarily aware of. Yeah, they have to honor the money. I mean, if you go to some uncontacted tribe and they offer you some berries and meats and you hand them a hundred dollar bill that's 
totally worthless to them. So they're not <laughs> going to respect that as legal tender unless they have a way to redeem that in some exactly. capacity. So we, we ascribe the value to money. With coinage, there used to be the inherent value to it. Like if it's gold, then you could potentially melt it down into something that was fancy and worth that amount. But yeah, paper currency, not so much. Paper is not that valuable. Yeah. And nowadays it's mainly just ones and zeros on a um, digital account. And there's there's value in ones and zeros, but it's difficult to to make it tangible, to grasp it. So from the development of having money as a universal means of uh, exchanging things, one of the biggest development was able to give out money to someone in order for them to make something bigger and to charge back that money eventually with interest, of course, um, <laughs> in order to, to, to get back your uh, initial investment. So basically the banking system. Interestingly here in different religions and cultures, it was uh, unethical to charge interest. Um, and Jewish, um, in the Jewish scripture, for example, it, it's you're not allowed to charge any extra on the money you're lending to someone. You're lending it to someone be, because you trust them and you want them to succeed. Not because you want to make a bunch of money from giving money to them. Please keep all interest levels at reasonable amounts. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, well, we kind of got away from that as a society over time. And there is some merit to charging interest in order to have more, um, a bigger money supply for other investments. There's there's good and bad sides to it. I think we're really going overboard with it lately, but that's just my opinion. I think there's certainly some people that think we're, we're not charging enough interest because if we would charge more interest, there would be more money potentially in the economy to in order to enable us to do more things, which would generate more money and so on and so on. Um, we really like growth in our economy, which there's a fair question if growth is the most important thing. I think that's a bit of a... Um, it's a huge rabbit hole to go into, so we, we're not going to start that for now. Um, yeah, but the, the basic fact is we have money, we're able to exchange it, we're able to store it, we're able to give it to someone for them to do something with it and hopefully get it back. And the, the latest development that kind of triggered the, the economy or the stock market as we know it nowadays that is worth mentioning is from the i want to say late 17th century uh, i'm a bit fuzzy on those numbers so basically it was the dutch east india company so this was during the time when all the european nations were uh, exploiting uh, india for its trade in spices for for all the riches they had and shipping, um, taking a ship there, bringing a bunch of stuff back and trading it really expensively on a European market. 
and this was good business um like trade in this sense has been around for thousands of years as well there's the famous example of the silk road um where they exchange good between the um between asian cultures and for the most part the what is it called the what what's now known as the middle east so people knew about how um effective trading is and how much people like stuff even back then and new and fancy stuff stuff that other people don't have to make them envious of you it was always a thing and what the dutch east india company did was invent a new concept to this trade and that's in partially investing into something so imagine if you have a boat that goes to india and will come back um, with a bunch of goods you'll be able to sell them make a bunch of money it's super thing for you imagine that boat sinks on the way or pirates uh, capture it or anything other will happen the the goods that come back will um get lost on the sea or you you decided to bring a bunch of fruit and they, they rot on the way over so there's many things that could go wrong when you have um trading with boats in that sense so what the dutch east india company did was starting to give you the option to invest in shares of hundreds of boats so you you give the same kind of seeding money you would give to a single boat or a single captain to go to india but other than giving it to a single captain you'd give it to 100 captains and then they would um, go out bring back stuff and you get a a part of the reward from each boat Uh, wife just came back even the dogs agree um, yeah <laughs> yeah so they started to to split up the economy into parts of goods and services in order to split up the risk so it, it was a means of risk management and out of that developed the the stock market as we now know it where you invest one dollar into cryptocurrency in the hopes that it will explode and you'll get a million dollars back don't think that's too realistic it's worth a try i guess and one thing that really changed with this is that it used to be that people invested into businesses out of their own personal interest in that business succeeding so they were really a part of the interest of that company and were part of it succeeding or failing while nowadays we're so alienated from that company where we just buy a share that we we would like it to succeed but we have no um means to 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 change their outcome other than investing more so we're alienated from the economy in that sense and yeah this has been going for about three four hundred years and we're to the point where we can uh, exchange um, stock options at the rate of a hundredth of a second um, the values of companies will change within that time frame so you can make a bunch of money just by buying or selling a bunch of stuff 
while there's no change to the company itself. So the people will keep working and the value of the company can change to a, a large degree by external things that don't have an impact on the company itself in a physical sense. But hundreds or thousands of people could lose their jobs just because we decided to to buy a bunch of stock sell it again at a low price the the rate of a com- the rating of a company will drop people lose their jobs so i think we're at a point where we can do some interesting stuff with the money we we can and choose to invest but there's also some really sinister stuff we can do and i'd prefer we had some a bit more balance in that Spend and invest wisely. That's something that I can do a little bit better on. I think everyone can. Uh, One of the interesting um, points that we can make through our own purchasing power is that we can actively decide decide what we invest our time or money in. So for example, by spending our time here on stream talking about philosophy we choose not to be watching a netflix movie or not to be out in the sun or we 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 actively or passively decide what we're doing and this is something i always point out that you should really do actively because it's your life and you should decide what you want to do with it rather than just letting um, circumstances decide And the same thing goes for our purchasing power. Um, In Switzerland, for example, there's been a big development towards having um, meat that grew up in a nice environment where it's not the the mass um, meat production as you know it in the US. But there's a big emphasis on them being grass-fed, living in the Alps and having eating happy cows basically which which has some other um connotations i to some degree i would prefer eating an unhappy cow other than having to kill a happy cow in order to eat it but uh, yeah there's certain developments you can um you can help further for example, by purchasing fair trade coffee or purchasing uh, fair trade clothing that will not make a big difference for yourself. It will not make a big difference for the economy as a whole. But as soon as enough people try, uh, will do so, it will put um, more more incentives on other companies producing the same way. And we can make a big difference just with our own purchases if it gains a big enough scale yeah the individual choosing not to use a straw makes virtually no difference but everyone stopping using straws makes a small difference yeah we talked some about the scale of those sorts of change we're the stewards of the planet and we're making some pretty big mistakes right now and there's pressure on the individual to make certain changes Uh, if you're thinking about the impact of that you're not really going to see it but if it trends and if you talk to other people about it and it becomes more of the norm then on a larger scale we are 
doing more of the right stuff. Additionally, it's important to address the big movers of things. So if you're thinking about CO2 in the atmosphere, I mean, yes, getting a hybrid vehicle is going to cut down on that in a tiny way, but it's the huge freighters on the oceans that are carrying tons of stuff that are really cranking out a whole bunch of it. It's not really the individual motorist who's causing the problem are going to have a huge impact. So it should be a multi-method and broad-based approach where you're incentivizing those big players in the game to make big changes because they're making a large impact on it. Yeah. So in terms of fair trade, um, someone points out that it's a competitive advantage tag and it will kill small providers. Um, I'm not saying everything is good with, with how fair trade is done. It, it's an interesting concept and there's certainly a need to exploit the farmers that will produce the initially goods less than we're doing nowadays, which isn't to say that fair trade isn't being abused as well but it's still somewhat better that, than, than other things we do. So every such concept should be taken with a grain of salt. And one interesting thing for me in that regard is how we're, or how company um, put the emphasis on the good things they're doing and neglecting all the terrible things you're doing. So for example, I, as a company, start to do fair trade. So I will pay off the farmers really well. Um, but in exchange, I will uh, abuse subcontractors. I will abuse other people in order to get that result and still keep it financially viable. So fair trade in itself isn't necessarily a good thing, but for you as a purchaser, um, investing in fair trade products will mean that you support the good side of the idea while also giving money to those that will abuse the, the bad side of the idea. Yeah, on the flip side, it has been described as a sort of marketing tactic where not only are you purchasing a cup of coffee, you're purchasing a coffee that you can feel morally upright about <laughs> because it's from fair trade beans and things like that. And that can end up being a marketing edge, which it kind of seems like it's doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. But if the net effect is doing the right thing, then, well, you can only complain so much. Yeah. And it's nice to feel good about having a cup of coffee and unless the coffee is inherently feels good just by drinking coffee, which it does for me, um, getting the extra edge of feeling it was fair traded. And some people or some of the farmers made a bit more money off of it than they would normally do, I think is a really nice gesture. Um, yeah, so that was the why of everything. Awesome. Why um, did you choose that as a topic? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, basically, I didn't have enough time to prepare a, a specific lecture on a subject because it takes a fair amount of work and I'm super busy with all the world economic stuff I'm doing. And I thought it'd be a 
a nice thing to talk about just to um talk about some different theories and talk about some different ideas and how we came into the humanity we know it today well i had fun and i think that i could probably talk with you about most anything and have a good time appreciate people in the chat bringing up some important notes giving us some corrections and some feedback as always this will be the podcast form if you're listening from the podcast what is up looking forward to doing more of these big hype for your world economic forum business that's going to be coming up uh, we'll give a, another shout out to this after we wrap up the recording for the day Sounds always fantastic having you on i know for a fact that we have nietzsche in our future that's your favorite philosopher. And I actually just sent you a music video recently that was, I think, quoting one of his obscure writings or something like that. But yep, we've covered a lot of the ancient philosophers. You can check out the playlist on YouTube. It's also on the Voice of Neuro podcast in the podcast command. Sir, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Always a pleasure having you on. Shout out to the nice dogs who made a brief appearance. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for having me and have a lovely day, all of you podcast listeners. GG, sir. We will see you on the next one. <laughs>